The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn, if you will, in the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 26, reading from verse 47 to verse 56. If you're following in the Pew Bible, that's on page 833. This is the Word of God. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber? with swords and clubs, to capture me. Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left and fled. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, having read your word, we know we stand on holy ground, both in your word and in your presence. And we feel our sin, our inadequacy, our great inability, our ready confession, Lord God, is that without you, we can do nothing. So speak to us, Lord God, that we might hear We might learn, Lord God, to love you and trust you and obey you even as our Savior did. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we come to perhaps familiar yet somber and sobering territory as we're reading of what is the prelude to our Lord's crucifixion, his betrayal and arrest. We need to pause and take in the significance of this narrative. Uh, We see here a strong emphasis upon the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Our Lord must be betrayed by a friend to his enemies in accordance with the Word of God. Moreover, we see a misplaced defense of our Lord Jesus Christ by one of his disciples, and that defense uh, is a defense which is not only against the will of God, 
but also a defense against the commitment of Christ to his cause, to his mission, a defense which would stand in the way of him obeying his Father in heaven. In short, this passage is going to lay before us our Lord's faithful determination to obey his Father and go to the cross. Our Lord's faithful determination to obey his Father and go to the cross. And we see that really in two parts to the narrative, the betrayal and the arrest. In verse 47, we'll witness the betrayal of our Lord by his friend. And then verse 51, we'll see the arrest of our Lord by his enemies. Betrayal and arrest. The betrayal of our Lord is by his friend. And as we read this passage, it should be particularly poignant and sobering as we consider the intimacy that the betrayer, as he's called, uh, Judas, had with his Lord. There's a number of emphases in relation to this idea. First of all, the language used concerning Judas. Verse 47, he's described as one of the twelve. Verse 49, he calls Jesus rabbi. He kisses him. Verse 50, Jesus calls him friend. A second emphasis is like it and feeds into it is the fulfillment of Scripture, the note in the passage that this is according to the fulfillment of the Scriptures. First, verse 54 But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so, the manner of his betrayal? And also verse 56, but uh, all this has taken place, the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Not just is his death prophesied and spoken of in the Old Covenant, but the betrayal is also prophesied and the manner of his betrayal. We could go all the way back to the Mosaic Law, Exodus 21 and verse 32, to see the price of betrayal laid out. The price of betrayal, 30 pieces of silver, was the price payable for a slave that was gored by an ox. That's how much value was put on Jesus' life by the Jews. Or we could go to Psalm 41, which we'll sing at the end of this service, where we read these words in verses 8 and 9. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate bread with me, has lifted his heel against me. We see that very thing fulfilled in the passages we've just read. Judas has just eaten the Passover with his Lord. And now he lifts his heel against his Savior. He betrays him. Or we could go to Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 12. Again, the prophecy that the payment for betrayal would be, what, 30 pieces of silver. Or we could step back, perhaps most poignantly, into Psalm 55 and verse 12 and 13, where we read this. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide it from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng.
Do we hear that, friends? The intimacy with which Christ spoke prophetically of his relationship with Judas. He ate bread with him. He was his companion. He was his apostle, one sent by Jesus, called by Jesus. He used to take counsel with Judas. He used to worship in the courts of God with Judas. That's why this text before us today is really a narrative of a great human tragedy, and a tragedy on a number of levels, as we'll now see. Firstly, the tragedy of which we've spoken. This is one of the inner circle of our Lord Jesus Christ betraying him, a friend betraying him to enemies. Think Judas was called into service as an apostle by Christ. He entered into the ministry of Christ in a peculiar way. A spectacular observation of Christ's ministry up close and personal. The human tragedy at the first level is this. This one betrayed his Lord. But the tragedy goes deeper than just that. The betrayal and disloyalty of a friend. The second tragedy is what's going on inside Judas and has over a number of years been going on inside him. Notice how in verse 47, Judas comes, yes, with a crowd, a crowd who come, as we're told, with swords and clubs. They come from the chief priests and the elders. That's another level of tragedy if we, if we want. They who should have seen the Messiah and received the Messiah are here complicit in his arrest and betrayal. But Judas comes, verse 48, he's called the betrayer there, notice that, and greets his Lord and says, Rabbi, and kisses him on the cheek. Consider what has been going on, the tragedy of Judas's own conscience, that year after year after year, he has silenced the conscience that should have not led him to betrayal, but should have led him to devotion to his Lord. His conscience is not totally dead. Conscience can't be obliterated. No matter how hard we try, his conscience will come back to haunt him in just a few hours, and it will lead to him taking his own life. But we see here how his conscience, he has become deaf to it, blind to it, insensitive to the voice of his conscience and of his Lord. We even read in the next section of our text how when one of the disciples fights back, our Lord is the one who stops it. Our Lord is the one who brings peace. Even then there was an opportunity for Judas to see, I've got the wrong man. I'm engaged in the wrong course of action. But he's deaf and he's blind to the voice of conscience. Calvin notes how Judas could have come as an enemy, which is what he was. He could have come like the rest of the enemies, with a club or sword in his hand, seen Jesus from afar and just pointed him out. But no, he comes with the pretense of relationship. He comes with the pretense of intimacy. When Jewish men met each other, they put their arms around each other and kissed each other on both cheeks. It's what Judas did to his Lord. 
So dead inside him was his conscience. So silenced was his conscience through years of sin and unbelief. He actually thought he could betray his Lord with some pretense of closeness and relationship. He'd rendered his conscience insensitive. Friends, it's a terrible lesson to every Christian and every person who professes to be a Christian. In Judas, we see it's possible to profess the Lord Jesus Christ. It's possible to be called into the innermost circle of servants of the Lord Jesus Christ without actually ever having known him or loved him. It's possible. We call such a person a hypocrite. They bear all the marks of someone who is devoted to the Lord, but they deny their Savior. They deny the power of true religion. Such a life, friends, is a recipe for an end like Judas. We need to understand that. But it's also possible for a genuine Christian, for a time, And only for a time, but it is possible for a genuine Christian to also silence their conscience so much that sin becomes easy, pleasurable, and necessary in their lives. Scripture is quite clear on that. The 12th century monk Bernard of Clairvaux said this, At first, sin is only a possibility. Then more probable, but still a heavy task. Next it becomes easy, and then light and sweet, and at last, necessary. At first sin is only a possibility, then more probable, but still a heavy task. Next it is easy, then light and sweet, and at last it becomes necessary. In the life of a true Christian. Judas was not a true Christian, and this pattern is observable in him. This is a man who had exquisite access to the means of grace. He saw our Lord's ministry for three years and still turned his back on it. Christian, if this is you, where you're sliding on the pathway into necessary sin, where it becomes such a compulsion in you that it's necessary to engage in that sin, friend, you're called now to repent. There's a gravity to this teaching. There's a gravity to the message of Judas. Do not let sin become easy and then light and sweet, and at last necessary in your life. If you're a child of God and you live like that, God's going to chasten you until you turn from that sin. And chastening is not pleasant. But the Lord will do it to you because he loves you. There is a great human tragedy, and it's in the betrayal of a close friend not just in the betrayal of a close friend and apostle, 
There's great tragedy in one who had silenced his conscience to everything but his own desires. But friends, it's not just a human tragedy. This is the narrative of a divine plan. The text makes that abundantly clear that all this took place, verse 54, verse 56, all this took place in the fulfillment of Scripture. It was God's plan that the Christ should be betrayed. It was God's plan that he should be betrayed in such a way. And you know, our Lord Jesus Christ knew this because he knew his Old Testament scriptures. He knew Psalm 41. He knew Psalm 55. He knew Zechariah 11. He knew he would be betrayed. At the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 6, he says this, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you the twelve and one of you is a devil? He knew one would betray him. And certainly by the point we've read in Matthew 26, he knew it was Judas who would betray him. And Jesus could have resolved all this a long, long time ago. Think on that. He could have outed Judas early in his ministry. He could have pointed out that he was the one who had his hand in the collection box. He could have been explicit and said, Judas, you're the devil. Be gone. He could have outed him. He could have canceled Judas. But he didn't. Why? Because of his unfailing commitment to be obedient to his Father's will as revealed in Holy Scripture. The Scriptures had to be fulfilled in his life. He had to be obedient to his Father's will. He had to be betrayed by his own close friend, his own companion. In order that he could obey, in order that he could go to the cross, in order, dear Christian, that he could save you. Friends, you need to see here the heart of the Savior. Not in self-preservation, but in obedience to his Father unto the salvation of you. Let that address your heart today. Christ could have put an end to this in one moment, but because of his commitment to save, he went with it. It's not just a great example, though it is an example. It's not just teaching us how we also should live, though it is doing that. But let this address your heart. He was betrayed by his friend so that he might never betray you. That's his commitment to you this day, dear Christian. But Judas arrests him as a friend. Sorry, betrays him as a friend so that he might be arrested by his enemies. Verse 51, the arrest of our Lord by his enemies. We've been speaking about Christ's commitment to go to the cross, to obey the Father's will, to fulfill Scripture, to get to the cross and deliver sinners. That's a commitment not held by all his disciples. An unnamed disciple here, John's Gospel tells us who it is. No surprises, it's Peter. Peter is armed, and he springs to the defense of our Lord. We read there in verse 51, Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, let's be clear. Peter's not aiming for the ear. 
This is a blow that's designed to, 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 to crush his skull. In the providence of God, he dodges and the ear is caught. What's he doing? He's seeking by force to prevent the arrest of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to get into the debate about is it legitimate to use force. We know there's times it is. But Peter's actions here reveal he has not understood who his Lord is, what is the nature of his kingdom, the nature of his messiahship, and he still not has understood that his Lord must go to the cross. He's still thinking about an earthly kingdom, an earthly messiah, who he can defend via earthly means. That's not to say Peter's an unbeliever. He's clearly not. But he hasn't yet connected all the dots of Christ's messiahship and of Christ's reign. The thought of Jesus dying is just too much for him. The thought of Jesus being arrested is just too much for him. He's still too earthly-minded to allow for the conception of a dying Messiah. And we can look back on him and think poorly of Peter, because we know the end from the beginning on this, don't we? But friends, I suggest to you that we ought not be too hard on him, lest with the measure that we judge, it's measured unto us. Because frankly speaking, we often operate like this. Are there not certain providences that you have experienced, perhaps you're experiencing them now, or circumstances in your life which, you are, which are beyond what you are prepared to deal with or beyond what you think is reasonable in your life? That you've come up against this providence and think, that's just a bridge too far, God. And you might not shake your fist at him or, or, or bang it down on the table, but that's what's going on in our heart. It's more than we're prepared to countenance. It could be a providence of illness or death or unemployment or being betrayed by a close friend. Such was the case with Peter. He could not conceive of a dying saviour. He and we, he should have been and we must be, ruled by faith, not by sight. Ruled by faith, not by sight. Dale Ralph Davis says in his commentary on Judges, we don't like to be without an explanation. But faith is willing, if need be, to be baffled to bow and worship in the dark. Faith is willing to be baffled by circumstance and still submit to God. Peter's faith was overcome in that moment. He needed to bow to his Lord's will, not his own. And Jesus reveals his errors in the text. Verse 51, Jesus says, put the sword away. Because if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. It's a pretty simple principle. If you're going to get your way by force, someday it'll catch you out. It's ironic, isn't it? That it's Jesus sparing Peter's life in that moment. 
because there's a whole group of men come to arrest Jesus bearing clubs and swords. One man will not defeat them. Jesus is sparing Peter in the very moment Peter sought to spare Jesus. Moreover, Jesus says that Peter's defense is entirely unnecessary. Verse 53, he says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? He's saying, Peter, your sword is meaningless. I could call on my father now, and more than 60,000 angels would come down from heaven and deliver me. And of course, he didn't even need 60,000 angels. He's God the Son. This is the one who slew 185,000 Assyrians in one night as they camped around God's people. (laughs) He didn't need any help. But no. No sword. No word from his mouth. No myriad of the angelic host. He set aside his own desires in order to submit to his father's will. And notice this. He's just been praying in the garden, not my will, but thine. And now God gives him the grace and the faith to enact that prayer. He acts according to his prayers. He acted according to his prayers. And he's infatuated in a good way with this idea that Scripture must be fulfilled. Verse 54, he could call on these angels, but that would stop the Scriptures being fulfilled. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? It must be this way, he's telling his disciples. It must be this way, he's telling us a lesson perhaps we struggle with in our own lives. But he also has a message for his enemies who have come for him. Verse 55, At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against me as against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Why have you come out in this manner against me, he says. He he says, my life has been an open book to you. I've been in the temple. You've heard my teaching. You've seen my miracles. You've seen all the good and the righteousness and the holiness of my life. He says, why have you come out against me like this? The answer's clear. They're cowards. They come out by means of betrayal. They come out at night, fearing the people. In their darkness, they could not see him because they hated him. They hated our Lord. They hated his life of light. They hated his kindness, his care, his love, his truth, his justice. They hated it because they were of darkness. And it's not just them that fail on the night. We read finally, then all the disciples left him and fled. Not just the ones he had carried with him, brought with him in the prayer, but appears all the disciples have come to him at some point in the night. We read all the disciples left him and fled. 
their earlier pride, now revealed in deep humiliation. Remember their words? Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. All the disciples, we read, left him and fled. Friends, we bring this to conclusion. We see here two matters. Not only is our Lord Jesus the way of faith, but he is the way. Not only is he the way of faith, he is also the way. He's the way of faith in the sense that he lays before us the most perfect example of trust and obedience in his Father's will. He obeyed his Father in fulfillment of the Scriptures over and above his own release and liberty. He had faith which led to obedience, even to arrest. His calling, of course, is to go to the cross. How did he do it? He did it by faith. The writer of the Hebrews says this of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. Despised the shame of the cross. Despised the humiliation of betrayal by his own friend. Despised being put in fetters and chains by those who should have worshipped him. He laid aside his own desires. He, he laid aside his own divine prerogatives so that he might fall into the hands of men. He reveals to us in that an example, yes, that we ought to follow. It's our calling also in the power of the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ who has given us his spirit in the fullness of the spirit that we are to choose the life of obedience, the life of faith, and the life of trust in God. We are to choose that, and we are to choose it daily, every day, and multiple times every day. We're to live that life of faith, that life of trust which leads to obedience in spite of the apparent contradictions and tensions of this life. Sometimes we have to let tensions be unresolved in our lives. We have to be prepared by faith to let injustices rest in the hand of God. Even the trials of this world that clearly hated our Lord and hates us, we must be prepared to stand firm regardless of the outcome. Yes, there is a great picture of how the Christian should live. He is the way of faith, but more importantly than that, he is the way. He is the way of salvation. You see, that's the greater narrative here, that this betrayal is one step in his arrest, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, to the end that the elect might have everlasting life, that our sins may be forgiven, that we might be accounted righteous in the sight of God for the sake of Christ's righteousness. This is one part of that jigsaw. It must happen. It must be this way. It must be so, verse 54. 
Friends, if you're not a Christian here today, let's say if you do not have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not bowed to his lordship, I need to tell you you're walking on the thinnest of ice. And it's only a matter of time, if you stay that way, that you fall through to your death and eternal judgment and condemnation. We tell you that not because we think we're better than you, but because we've been delivered from that. You must receive this Savior today. I ask you, dear friend, if you're here today without Christ, what's holding you back? from believing in the Lord Jesus. What's holding you back? This is one who is willing to be betrayed, to go to the cross, to deliver sinners like you from your sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But if you are a Christian, child of God, beloved in his sight, This narrative of betrayal and arrest should lead in you to a profound growth in thankfulness and in the assurance of your salvation. A profound growth in thankfulness and the assurance of salvation. We ask the question, should the Son of God be betrayed for us? Scripture says, yes, unequivocally so. The Son of God was betrayed that we might be saved. He endured deep pain, appalling humiliation for you if you belong to Christ. Friends, if that doesn't create in you a sense of of a debt of gratitude and thankfulness, I don't know what will. In other words, how can you be more thankful? How can you be more grateful for what God has done for you? We should be growing in our understanding of this. Read the text again on your own this afternoon and see if it doesn't move you, if not to tears, then to greater thankfulness that the Savior, the Eternal Son, should come down from heaven, be incarnate of the woman, and yet go to the cross for your sins, not his own. Friends, your salvation was not won by some casual affair or transaction, but by the betrayal and the death of the perfect God-man. Let that sink in. Don't let it crush you. Let it encourage you. Greater thankfulness in your life, greater service, greater delight in our God. And secondly, we say this should create in us a great assurance of salvation. Friend, are you not more assured of your faith as a result of this terrible narrative rather than less assured? Are you not more assured of God's love towards you because of this narrative? You should be. Jesus was betrayed. All his disciples left him and fled. But he tells us, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's not going to do what was done to him. He's not going to depart from you. Even when it feels like he might have. He simply won't do it. 
He's promised, and he never breaks his promises. I will never leave you or forsake you. Don't we sing these words? Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. If I can change the words and say this, tis Jesus has brought me safe thus far. And Jesus will lead me home. Such is the betrayed yet faithful Savior. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy upon us. Work in us that faith that turns from sin, pursues righteousness, trusts you no matter what the circumstance of life may be. And through the many dangers, the toils, the snares, the sorrows, the bereavements, the hardships of this life, we trust you to keep us, Lord God, because our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.